0: today. It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, February 4th, twenty eighteen. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time over at com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's having A good weekend and probably getting ready to enjoy the Super Bowl. And you ask, well, Mike, you said you normally don't do anything on Super Bowl Sunday. And that was true, but had a little scheduling conflict. Wanted to do probably the show last week, but couldn't get it done. And I'm glad I didn't because Ken Rosenthal probably had the most interesting tweet about what the Mets are thinking that we wouldn't have had access to last week. That news wasn't out there which gives me a good chance to give you my thoughts on maybe the direction the Mets are going. Our guest, though, in just a little bit is an old friend of the show and somebody who you probably follow. You probably have read one of his books. If you haven't, go check it out. Greg Prince, the uh, you know the, the author of the blog Faith and Fear and Flushing, author of uh, books like Piazza. Uh, Amazing Again, which chronicled the 2015 Mets, the Happiest Recap, and of course the Faith and Fear and Flushing book. Uh, My, uh, you know, basically my Mets historian, you know, Uh, I haven't been watching the Mets nearly as long as he, and why am I bringing Greg on? Well, back around New Year, he wrote a post which really got, I guess, the the mental bubblegum portion of When you have something uh, you know baseball related, where you want to just get the little mental teaser, Uh, his top Mets teams of all time, and and what I did is I said let me let me go to Baseball Reference and look at what Baseball Reference from just a pure data driven standpoint how they ranked the best Mets seasons of all time, which is pure on what is the Pythagorean one loss percentage, what is the Pythagorean one loss percentage. It's basically taking the team's runs scored, runs allowed, and saying, well, this is what their record should have been. And that's it. Very simple. And it is interesting to look at how the all-time Mets seasons on Baseball Reference, you go to the Mets franchise encyclopedia, how they stack up is uh, actually probably, for long-time Mets fans, maybe one surprise in there. Uh, So we're going to compare that to what uh, Greg has. Maybe him and I will chat a little bit about the most disappointing seasons. Surprising seasons. I mean, he'll go up and down, and and I know that, that some of this is obvious. Also, there was um, – and I'm not going to get too deep into it, but David Cohn and Daryl Strawberry each have had opinions on the 86 Mets and the 98 Yankees. Who would be better? Coney thinking the 98 Yankees are, Strawberry thinking the 86 Mets were. And I, if I remember correctly, I'd have to go back into my archive. I had Daryl on my WGBB program back in 2007. The night of a Subway Series game, believe it or not. It's been going back a long time. And I think he said the same thing. So let's get Greg's opinion, and I will reveal, because I actually played. I'm a big Stratomatic Baseball fan, computer game, not the cards and dice like when I was a kid. And I know that all of you probably have some baseball sim or fantasy baseball that you play. But I have to tell you, if you play Stratomatic Baseball, and you play same season, as-played lineups, Transactions almost you know everything the same. You get some pretty realistic results. Now obviously when you cross over season into season, that's when uh, things could get wonky. But that's what you're doing with the 86 Mets and the 98 Yankees. And I went back to my, which is no longer available, my old nybaseballdigest.com site on the Wayback Machine to look at a series I played, a six game series using the Stratomatic simulation for that website. And you might remember that, but I'll give you an idea. I don't have the, as much detail as I would like, but I'll give you an idea who won and uh, and what went down in that series, uh, which was pretty cool, pretty exciting, and, and that'll give you an idea as who's right, David Cohn or Daryl Strawberry. And I'll tell you what, that tells you what kind of off season we've had. We're here, and maybe we would have done that anyway on a Super Bowl Sunday, where. Um, we're talking about the '86 Mets and the '98 Yankees and all-time Mets seasons and things like that. So who knows? By the time you get this podcast, maybe something will happen and you'll say, you know what? I'll save this for another day. But regardless, I think it was something interesting to as we as we charge towards pitchers and catchers in just what about ten days, maybe less, and then really start to get into you know the 2018 Mets and Mickey Callaway and the culture that he's trying to build and and can this team that has some talent. Regardless of whether they make another move or not, can this team rebound and and compete for uh, potential playoff spots? We'll get into all that. But Ken Rosenthal, before that will be in a little bit, Greg will, will be joining me. Ken Rosenthal tweeted out basically what the Mets are looking to do. So it looks like the Mets are looking to get an infielder and maybe, if the price is right, ding, 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 get another starting pitcher. So here's where it's at. And if the Mets could land one of these things, I'd be pretty happy with of them going into the spring training if they can land both. I think it's been a pretty good off season. I'm a little skeptical that they could pull off the starting pitcher component of this. So first, the Mets are looking at basically Eduardo Nunez or Todd Frazier as infielders. I am. And I've been saying this. I said this on the first podcast when the season ended. When I said, you know, the three guys I would target who I think would be different difference makers would be a Todd Frazier at third. Eric Hosmer at first, and potentially bringing in another starter, a veteran starter like R.A. Dickey. Now, it doesn't look like Dickey's going to be pitching. Maybe he's a guy that's going to come in midseason. He's going to look at the market and swoop in for a big contract, You know, spend some time with the family, and then play for a contender. Uh, that's very possible. Or he could retire. I think a lot of people feel he's going to retire. So that was out. Hosmer's still sitting around waiting for his big contract, eight-year contract, and that falls into the whole – controversy over the economics of the game, which we very well should get into at some point on this program, and that may be the next thing we do. Uh, and then Frazier's still sitting around, and it seems like the, the hesitation with the Mets is whether Frazier's using him to get a bigger deal from the Yankees or the same deal from the Yankees. So rather than do the dance, it's almost like they're waiting for him to come to them and say, you know, I'm done waiting for the Yankees. So. Personally, if I were the Mets, I would say, hey, you know, this is what we're willing to give. This is the most we're willing to give. Take it or leave it and walk away and do it to both of them. And if they both say no, then you move on. I mean, it's not like – I mean, this is – I wouldn't say it's a a, a luxury because I'm not sure Jose Reyes, who now is back with the team since the last time we had the podcast, is somebody I'd want to hand over second base for the whole season. But Jose had a pretty good year from June on. And, uh, you know, he's a veteran. He wants to play here. He still has a little bit of speed. He showed some pop last year. I think Jose Reyes is a guy that'll get you 270 batting average, 10 home runs, you know, 25 stolen bases. And, And, you know, defensively, he wasn't great at third. And he certainly lost a step at shortstop. But maybe second base will be something that, you know, he'll be very uh, va- viable as a, a league average defensive second baseman. We'll see. I think having him in more of a 350 at-bat or versatile role, having a Todd Frazier at third, it seems like a Struble-Cabrera made it pretty clear he'd rather play second. Uh, defensively, that might be more of a problem because there's more mobility needed at second. Uh, maybe, you, you know, you see who... You know, plays better in terms of getting majority of the playing time. I think is a better hitter, has more pop than Reyes, but he can move around the field too. is a guy that wants to be a super sub, so to speak. I'd rather have Cabrera short than Wilmer Flores in a pinch, I'll tell you that much. So bringing Frazier in adds some dynamic with a guy that has some leadership, is from the area. I just think it's the right move. Nunez had a career year with Boston and 800 OPS and in about 175 at-bats, had eight home runs. He really played well with the Red Sox. He could play second, he could play third, he could play short. I know he could play the outfield. I don't think he plays any of those positions well. I remember watching him all the way back to the Trenton Thunder days when he was a member of the Yankees. He's just not a good defensive player. Now, they have somebody like that, Wilmer Flores, who I think would you know, be suffice. And a lot of times I've said... Ulmer Flores is, you know, basically the Mets' version of uh, Eduardo Nunez. And if you look last year, you go to his splits. Uh, Nunez is a guy that uh, hits left-handed pitching and right-handed pitching. The difference is pretty pretty much the same. Where Flores is a guy who does much better against left-handed pitching than right-handed pitching. So. You know, there's a value there with Nunez. I personally would have Frazier now, and I think our buddy Michael Mayer over on Twitter, over at you know the guy, our buddy from Mets Marized Online, Mets Miners, said, "Well, I would never compare the two and put them on equal footing unless one comes significantly cheaper than the other." You also could throw in the whole Yankee factor. So that there's that. You know, if the Mets can land one of those two, I think that'd be good. I'd prefer Frazier. I wouldn't sneer at Nunez, but wouldn't be my first choice now. The starting pitching conversation, this ties into about a week ago when there was a luncheon, and Jeff Wilpett had said that if there's a way to significantly upgrade the roster, they would go after the right player. Now, Lance Lynn and Alex Cobb are two starting pitchers, and I would call them more number three-type starting pitchers, maybe with number two upside. They're not aces, but I think they're solid. They're you know both, from an age perspective, probably falling into, I think Cobb is 30, and I'll grab that in a minute here. Um, I guess they don't, yeah, Cobb is actually 29, going to be 30, and Lynn is, let's get this here, Lynn, Lance Lynn is actually just turned 30. So I, I don't see the hesitation with giving either a three-year contract, and already Cobb, it was reported, had a three-year, $42 million deal from the Cubs that he turned down. So clearly he's looking for a five-year deal. Uh it's tough because both of these guys come with warts. If you if you peel the onion on the advanced metrics, Lynn won eleven games last year, had a very solid three point four three ERA. Um, you know, his strikeout rate is still pretty strong, about seven eight per game. But his walk rate, which has always been high, he was nearly four walks per nine innings. That sullies a little bit his advanced metrics, his FIP of nearly almost five runs per game. But overall, he's a very solid starting pitcher. And, you know, from an ERA plus, you look at him, he's not all that different than Jacob DeGrom. Uh, I think he would fit very nicely. He's a guy who could give you 180 to 200 innings. And that's something that right now, other than DeGrom, you really don't have on this roster. So certainly bringing in someone like Lance Lynn, who I would think would still command a four- or five-year deal, would – now he's had Tommy John surgery. But I think it would be something that I'd be surprised if he didn't get uh, a longer deal. Now, Cobb is a little bit different. Cobb had a concussion back in the day, which uh, shortened his 2013 season. He had Tommy John surgery. He just seemed to, after basically three long years, uh, come back to form last year. Uh, The concern I have with Cobb is this. I mean, his sample size is, is a lot smaller in terms of durability. Uh, his strikeout rate has declined since his pre-Tommy John days, about two strikeouts per game, a little bit better control, uh, pitched in the American League East, pitched for Tampa, uh, won 12 games, lost 10, and, and his, his secondary uh, metrics aren't that bad. Now, there's obviously with this, because he hasn't proven over a longer period of time like a Lance Lynn. Uh, there's a little bit more of a risk maybe here. I think that Cobb probably will command lesser deal. My question is this: Why would his price come down if he turned down three years of forty-two million dollars from the Cubs? You got to assume that that deal is still there if it's true. That's what the Mets are competing against. Uh, you know, twelve to forty-two million dollars, you know, fifty million dollars a year. I, I did never get the impression that that's the kind of budget they have. Maybe on a one-year deal. Now, either of these pitchers, bringing them in, gives you a little bit of security for next year when you probably are going to lose Matt Harvey. Now, you're assuming that Matt Harvey is going to go out and pitch maybe not vintage Matt Harvey, but very much viable. Could Matt Harvey give you what a Lance Lynn or an Alex Cobb gave their respective teams last year? If he doesn't, then that'd be, you know, he's not going to go out and get a big contract. I mean, you're not paying Matt Harvey big dollars to be a league average pitcher. You want a guy that could win 12 to 15 games, give you. Uh, you know an ERA plus of 115 to 120 you know somewhere in that range which would be significantly lower than vintage Matt Harvey but still very solid I think that's what you could hope out of him if you sign one of these two then there's your replacement for when Harvey leaves you know it gives you a depth of pitching you know Mickey Calloway in in a great interview with uh, Kevin Kernan talked about doing a six-man rotation now you don't have to worry about is Seth Lugo healthy? Uh, is Robert Gazelman, uh, Who is he a flash in the pan? We don't know. Rafael Montero doesn't make me feel good when he takes the mound. I mean, there just seems to be so many base runners, and he's a bit of feast or famine. I mean, he's a guy who, who always can lose his, his command and control right, right away. So these are guys that at the very least, uh, again, have health concerns, Cobb more than Lynn, but can provide stability to a rotation, and, and a rotation that has to be good because even though the Mets are going to uh, score some runs. I don't think they're going to be putrid offensively. They're not going to be one of the best offensive teams in the league, and they are going to be a little bit of feast or famine on offense because you have a situation where, um, you know, they're very strikeout prone, very home run driven, and those come and flow. There's ebbs and flows with that. So, uh, I personally uh, look at this. I would say both of these guys come at risk. Who comes? I, and I think here's where the Mets will go. I think the Mets will go with whoever has the more reasonable contract. I just don't see how either of these guys will come down to the level the Mets are willing to play with because there is still concerns with both. I just don't see it. If three years, $42 million is what Cobb has on the table, you've got to think Lynn is worth that, if not more. And why would all of a sudden, despite the slow free agent market, all of a sudden these guys sign a one- or two-year deal unless you really overpay for that one-year deal. Rather than get 12 to $15 million, you say, here's $20 million. They make a little bit more in one year, go back out next year, maybe score a bigger deal than what they have now, the old pillow contract. I think that's what the Mets are hoping for, and that's probably what the sales pitch on the Mets side would be. But if I'm an agent and you know, it depends on what the player wants, uh, You know, you, this market has shown that teams are looking at free agency a lot different now. Uh, even I've seen some fans with this, you know, Lance Lynn saying, you know, why would I sign Lance Lynn when I lose a second-round pick? I mean, guys, come on. You can't start treating baseball draft picks like NBA or NFL. You can't do that. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday. You have a chance to win. Development in baseball is hard. Even the most high highly touted prospect has a, a larger chance of never making it. Than actually making it so you, you know you got to be reasonable but if you have a chance to win and the Mets do you got to go out and take a, take the uh the push at what what is a window of opportunity so anyway uh that's where we're at that's where free agency is at you know hopefully between now and pitchers and catchers something happens there's so many free agents there's talk of them having their own camp uh, i think things are really going to start moving but i've been saying that since thanksgiving so what the hell do I know? So anyway, let's take a quick break. When I return, Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing. Let's go into the time machine. Greg and I are going to talk a little bit about best seasons in Mets history, 86 Mets versus 98 Yankees, and I'm sure something else will come up along the way. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. Of course, you can check it out all the time at com. Send me a tweet at MikeSilverMedia and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, whatever podcasting service you desire. We'll be back with Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing. Faith and Fear and Flushing. Jeez, tongue-tied on that right after this.
1: Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. MetsMorize Online is the go to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in depth analysis, minor league reports, game by game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to Metsmerizedonline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today.
0: We're back, and as promised in the open, joining us, uh, Greg Prince. You guys know him from Faith and Fear and Flushing, the book Piazza that came out, uh, Amazing Again, uh, all sorts of different types of projects he's worked on over the years. Uh, Obviously, you can go to faithandfearandflushing.com, and follow him on Twitter, at Greg underscore Prince, and what better guy to talk Mets baseball with on Super Bowl Sunday. Greg, how you doing, man? Long time no talk.
2: Good to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You are the cherry on
0: top of Radio Row in Super Bowl week this week. So uh, <laughs> you, and I, you and I are probably the outliers. But um, what really is a cold stove, what really is a tough off season to talk about the current team, unless you want to just complain. Uh, I said to myself, you know, back on New Year's, you came out with an interesting post. And it covered the top 56 seasons of all time for the Mets. And I looked at it, and I said, wow, that's interesting. And then I proceeded to go to baseball reference and compare what the data said with what you said. So uh, before I get into it, so here's for the listeners. And if they haven't checked it out, it was out on December 30th, com. You used the criteria, World well, championships are better than pennants. Pennants are better than playoffs. Playoffs are better than winning seasons. Winning seasons are better than losing seasons, and then there's the nuance that informs the rest. Here's my first question. I'm surprised you haven't done that yet. I thought you would have done this years ago, but this is pretty cool and probably a fun exercise for you.
2: Yeah, This is one of those things that I guess I've always had in the back of my mind and that I never get to normally because in my mind it's a much more expansive deal where – it would have been like a weekly series, so we're talking 56 weeks. That's, you know, more than a year in theory. But, um, you know, this, this mostly grows out of an ability or an inability to fall asleep sometimes and just think, well, you know, which which year was better than what year when the years are kind of similar and, for that matter, which years are worse than other years when the years are sadly similar, so uh, I think I've alluded to some of this stuff over the years in other contexts, but just to kind of throw it together as one long countdown, uh, you know, you mentioned the date that it was it was um, posted. That was right around my birthday, and, you know, I like my birthday is New Year's Eve. And when I was a kid, I fell in love with the concept of the New Year's Eve countdown, specifically, uh, you know, radio stations counting down the top songs of the year, that sort of thing. So this was put together kind of on the fly. The the list existed, but the the post was put together on the fly in that spirit. And uh, it just seemed like, uh, you know, I don't have anything else to say on this uh, particular uh, 2017 going to 2018. Uh, Let me see what I can come up with. And I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: Well, here's an interesting one I'm going to throw at you because it's an era that you probably w- would appreciate. So, when you go up and down Greg's top 10 seasons, look, the, the the obvious ones are going to be there, 86, 88, you know, 99, 69, you know, seasons that even if, you know, not all of those ended in championships, were really good seasons. But if you go to Baseball Reference and you just do the Pythagorean one-loss percentage, Here's a season that comes up at number nine, and it's actually one of the better pitching seasons in Mets history, not too far off from 1988. And the 1976 Mets, led by Joe Frazier, actually are the ninth in terms of their one run scored, runs against, that kind of metric of power ranking. They're the ninth best team, Mets team of all time. And that, I wonder if that surprises you. And it is a season that gets lost in what really was a dismal 77
2: to 82, 83. That is surprising. I mean, I, I did not consult with baseball reference in doing this. I mean, my criteria bit beyond the ones that I wrote and that, that you were kind enough to list was the sense of, you know, how alive the Mets were in the course of these seasons. Uh, and 76 is kind of an interesting year in that to that point – we're talking the 15th year of Mets baseball. It was the second best record they ever had. And that would remain the second best record they ever had until 1984. So we're talking, you know, through the first 22 seasons of Mets history, you know, except for once in 1969, it never got better than 86 and 76. But in my way of thinking, you know, what, what did it get them? And I remember living through that year and I remember a good start and being hopeful and then a long stretch of mediocrity during which the Phillies left them in the dust. And, you know, the – although we didn't really know it for another year, uh, you know, the, the, the seams began to show, shall we say. And, you know, all of that would kind of come into play in 77 and the years beyond. Uh, I remember that being an incredibly good pitching year. I remember as a 13-year-old thinking – Boy, if we had any hitting, you know, Matt Lack would be a 20-game winner. Kuzman would probably win 25. He won 20. And Seaver would have won 30 because, in my mind, Seaver could do no wrong. Well, you know, if you combine the Reds hitting with the Mets pitching, well, they they tried that with Seaver the next year. So uh, I didn't mean to bring that on. But I'm surprised that it would rank ninth because, you know, the pitching was great. But other than, at least in, in my memory, and, you know, the individual statistics, you know, there was Dave Kingman hitting home runs until he was injured and really not a lot else, but uh, good good for the 76 Mets. It just wasn't, uh, it wasn't their year in 76, unfortunately.
0: No, uh, Reds, Dodgers run away with things. Kind of a boring uh, season when you look at pennant races, but... It also brings up, and I, I know I there was a book out many years ago, and I had the author on, and his name escapes me right now. He, he actually talked about the 70s Mets a little bit. and When you look at Seaver, Matlock, Kuzman, big three, if you go up and down the 70s, and if you, know, if you look at your list, there's obviously 73 in there and what have you, but the 70s really, if the Mets could have had any modicum of offense, which is really by today's standards, with the way offense is, it's not that hard to build an offense of, of at least league average. It, you know, Mets history is completely different. I mean, that's a big three. Everyone criticizes Mickey Lolich. He was league average that year. You had Craig Swan coming in as a young pitcher on, you know, as a fifth starter. Uh, the bullpen was pretty good with Skip Lockwood. Actually, uh, you know, before his time, striking out more than a batter an inning when that wasn't something anybody looked at. The '70s, which is not. An era well remembered obviously seventy three uh, would have been a lot different. It would have been interesting to see if you replay this thing with some hitting uh what could have happened
2: yeah i mean you, you could go back and take everything you know post sixty nine which again you know sixty nine it, it's hard to argue with fate. gee, I wish we had a few breaks when nineteen sixty nine is you know comes off as the the greatest fate of all time but you know that was a team capable almost every year of of winning, and they only won from seventy to seventy six one more time. Uh, you know that team, and this will sound familiar to the uh, modern day Mets fan, that that era Mets teams you know, suffered from injuries a great deal. I mean, seventy three, when when you consider how well they all played together once they were healthy, you know that that would not come come off as such a Miracle 2.0, because if if everybody had been healthy in '73, and if everybody had been healthy in '72, they probably win those divisions. Um, Fast-forwarding a little bit more, maybe just past '76, when free agency comes into being, and we had probably the worst possible ownership you could have, uh, as free agency becomes an option. You know, all all you needed to do was get a couple of hitters to kind of, you know, mask your mistakes, and you're talking about a team probably that doesn't fall apart as it did after 76, uh, yeah, the 76 team, you know, got kind of, you know, 75 maybe too, uh, you know, fell into a little bit of a gray area that the, deteriorating the of, of the organization, the farm system not really producing, but you still had that great pitching. And yeah, you're right about it. Even, even I took a little shot at Lulich in, in my write up of 76 there, but he wasn't a bad pitcher. In those days, we were conditioned to look at one lost records and he was, I think eight and 13 that year, uh, just to go back two years to a really pretty awful year, 74, which is a lot like 2017 in terms of one loss record expectations, not much in the way of making moves from, from a playoff year to the next year and then paying for it. Um, John Batlack had a tremendous year in all those things that other than ERA and shutouts, he didn't really know to look for. And, you know, again, but he went 13 and 15. And so at the end of the year, it's like, well, that was disappointing. But, you know, these days we, we sort of have a clue as to what makes a, a good pitching year. So the Mets always had pitching, but they never had hitting. They made a couple of, you know, famously terrible trades that, uh you know, go go down infamy. Uh, you know, certainly on the on the hitting side, trading away Joe Foy, you could argue trading away Ken Singleton. Right. Although you got Rusty Staub back, um, so you could go back to saying not drafting Reggie Jackson had an impact on that decade. So, uh, in a way, it was a you know, it's 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 not remarkable that they were a winning team year after year, except for one year in that period, and it's sort of remarkable that they didn't win at least one more time.
0: And you could look, Rusty Staub, obviously a big part of 1973. But that trade, they gave up some young talent in that deal. And you can argue, and I'm trying to bring them up right now to get the exact deal. I mean, Ken Singleton was in that deal. Singleton, um, uh, Foley,
2: and Jorgensen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Singleton is a guy uh, arguably might have been better or more sustainable than Rusty. Uh, I mean, you look at it, they probably were looking at winning now which is something I always talk about but uh, yeah I mean it, it, you know then you trade Rusty for Lowlich. it didn't it didn't quite work out that way he, here's another thing I'm going to throw at you that might surprise you and I'm I'm actually glad you didn't consult baseball reference because I think that that might have clouded you a little bit you remember 1984 quite fondly I you know it's still a little too young for that I come around a little bit later late 80s you know 87 86 like around there and obviously Mets fans remember 1984 quite fondly they should have won the division the Cubs just in typical Cubs fashion, before they won a couple of years ago, they'd have these wacky years where th- things just went their way, whether it be 89, whatever, sometimes unexplainable. But based on the, the metrics, that was a below 500 club, which really showed how Davey Johnson took young players and Keith Hernandez and, and overachieved, and, and how maybe that season, if they hadn't finished in the race, how would that team look? Would they go after Gary Carter? Would they feel as close as they were? So it's interesting to see when you look at the run differential, that's a below 500 club, a high 70s club, no different than some of the clubs you saw under Terry Collins before they went to the World Series.
2: Yeah, that, that I was actually aware of. I didn't really think about it as I was putting this together, but I once looked that up and was surprised that I found 78 wins or something like that. Uh, you know, th- these things t- tend to even out, I suppose, uh, again, that that was a a team you know built on much much like the teams we were just talking about, really good pitching. Uh, not not all of it really, not, not none of it yet at its peak. But um, you know that that team needed Gary Carter because, as you intimated, they had basically well they had three bats. Uh, you know, Foster had a really good year, again, as as we understood RBIs and things like that in those days. Uh, Strawberry took a while to kind of get it together, but he put up good numbers. And, you know, Keith Hernandez had his most Keith Hernandez year as a Met, probably. But, yeah, but, yeah the rest of it was Davey Johnson mixing and matching and, you know, re- relying on, on young Dwight Gooden and Jesse Orozco out of the bullpen and, and Doug Sisk uh, when, when he was still very reliable. So, you know, it, it was a surprise, just much like the Cubs were a surprise, the difference being the, the Cubs bulked up in the middle of the year. And, you know, when I got to work Sutcliffe and uh, at least uh, one other deal, uh, which escapes me at the moment, was midseason. The Mets, I think their, their big move was getting Bruce Bereni, sort of a dependable veteran lefty. So, you know, there was more work to be done after 84. And yet, you know, the way these things work, like, like you said, they were in first place uh, heading into August. If they don't blow, well, I shouldn't say blow, they lost a couple of series. to so the the Cubs were, uh, I think, swept uh, in consecutive weekends or something like that. And, you know, that was all she wrote. Basically, the Mets kind of hung in there. But, you know, it, it was a, a signal turnaround in the history of the Mets, and you knew it as it was happening. And the fact that they, you know, didn't completely fall apart, I mean, they didn't catch the Cubs, but they, you know, hang hang in there for the whole year, First winning record since '76. First time they would won 90 games since 1969. So expectations were high, and there were no barriers to going out and improving the team. And you know, you know, as I looked at the criteria for doing this thing, if, if once I decided that you know playoff teams, there have been nine playoff teams. Those are the top nine, whatever order we put them in. 84 comes in only behind 85. and a year that uh, the Mets didn't go to the playoffs, it was. You know, just it, it was the first year since '69 that, that told you better days are here, and uh, you know the, the best year in in that baseball commenced.
0: Absolutely, uh, Greg Prince with me, Faith and Fear and Flushing. You probably have read one of his books, The Happiest Recap, Faith and Fear and Flushing, Amazing Again, and recently Piazza. The interesting part is obviously either '69 or '86 was going to be number one. There's no real suspense there, but. Uh, I always thought 69 versus 86 was more generational. You know, maybe guys, I'm 41. Maybe guys my age, maybe a little younger who could remember it are going to always go to 86. 69 would be, you know, I guess baby boomers. I guess would be the right uh, term. Um, maybe. And I think it probably, yeah, probably would be tough because if you lived through both, each was special but probably in a way different way. And um, you're the right guy to talk to. You, you remember both. How did you come to that decision, 86 one 2 Because I don't think it's as clear-cut. Forget the, the one loss record and how far ahead they, they finished. I don't know if it's as clear-cut when you look at the, the nuance part.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, like you said, I had 86 ahead of 69. You know, 1969 is, is embedded in my origin story as a Mets fan, I and mean, I discovered the Mets as a six-year-old that year and everything about it, uh, you know, mm-hmm. remained sacred to me. But, you know, as I lived through the years that followed and that really, I think informed what, what 1986 was like for me, uh, that we were a- after you know, falling off a cliff in the seventies and struggling to get back up the cliff, if you will, in the early eighties. And finally, you know, making those strides in 84 and 85 to, to get to 86 and be that kind of team that for, for one year, this untouchable, nobody can beat us type of team. And then, you know, to, to bring it home the way they did. Um, you know, one of the undercurrents of living through 1986 as a Mets fan was, you know, will we ever have another year that's as great as 1969 that has somehow surpasses 1969 experientially with the understanding of 1969 and then it's, you know, rise from the depths of, of nowhere, uh, you know, is never going to be matched for what it was, you know, the whole Miracle Mets ethos. And it just was. There was something about 86 that told you that this is unmatched, you know, in a fan's lifetime. And I can't imagine... You know, again, Mets could surprise us one of these years and go out and win 115 games or something, and uh, you know, sweep through three rounds or however many playoffs there will be by then. And I you know, maybe I I would have to revise my thinking, but you know, the '86 team just put everything together. And if you were to ask me what is the most significant year in Mets history, I would say 1969, hands down. If you were to ask me, you know, what is the greatest, the best, whatever nebulous term I want, I want to use. You know, the, I would have to say 86. There, there was nothing like being the team in baseball for what turned out to be seven months.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A couple of uh, extremes here now I'll ask you. First one, as you were going through this list, I'm sure you're remembering seasons. Give me the season that you just looked at and you're like, ugh, if only, and, and how much different would it be? And, and I don't know. I mean, looking at it, there's a few of them. Maybe uh, there's one I'm thinking of, but I want to hear your thoughts. And, um, you know, I'm wondering if it was a season that maybe we're not even thinking about. We just said uh, if this, if that, and, and how much different not only would this list be, but maybe even Mets history.
2: Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, there, there's so many inflection points in Mets history. I mean, the, the one I always come back to for an if-only I'd written something a few years ago, taking the, the playoff years in which we didn't win the world series. And, you know, your, your listeners will forgive me for using first person plural, but sometimes I lapse into we, uh, when talking about the Mets, um, you know, if I, if you could change anything and, and get one more world championship out of uh, at that point, 2015, 16 hadn't happened yet. So we were just talking about the, uh, five years for me, it was 2006. Um, I think, well, it's hard to say because, you know, I spent 1987 being pretty miserable that it wasn't 1986 anymore. So you never know how these things go. But something tells me that if we had somehow, you know, beaten the Cardinals and gone on beating the Tigers in 2006, that whatever happened afterwards, we would have been a lot happier. And, I'll, I'll, I'll frame it this way that there was a, a jacket, I guess there still is, <laughs> that, that was in fairly wide circulation in the mid 2000s that had, you know, two pennants, if you will, embroidered on the back or trophies or whatever. It's kind of a varsity type jacket. Uh, you know, one celebrating the 69 Mets, one celebrating the 86 Mets. And I was at a game in 2006 in September. Uh, I think they had already clinched and a friend of mine said, wow, you know, isn't that a great jacket? I said, yeah, but, like, and we both agreed, like, like I want to wait until they win the World Series this year to get that jacket when it has three years on it, and we're still waiting for that third year, and you never know when that, you know, that next time is going to be. Um, for, from a, a less, a slightly less greedy standpoint in terms of, you know, a year that's not at that level, um, you know what what, what year actually – Saddens me, I suppose. Uh, 1991, because it was the end of, of the good times. Uh, times that, you know, turned out to be not as fruitful as, as had hoped, been hoped for after 86. But, you know, you just had it in mind that it was always the Mets had cured themselves of losing. And they you know, were in it every year, and they were winning about 90 games every year, and you figured with a little luck they would catch the Pirates or the Cardinals or whoever. didn't always turn out that way. And I distinctly remember I used used to get inside Pitch, the Mets monthly newspaper, and Howie Rose used to write a column called Mets Extra. And somewhere in the summer of 91, I I assume his deadline meant that he had to get this together, you know, with some lead time. Uh, so, well, you know, here we are, it's the eighth consecutive year in which the Mets are contenders, so on and so forth. The Mets then went proceeded to go out and just fall apart completely. And we didn't know that they would fall big apart for another six or seven years. And he had to print a retraction almost in the next edition of inside fish. Well, I spoke too soon. He wrote. And, uh, You know, in this little write-up I did, I just said, you know that feeling you get when you're coming down with a cold and you start to get sniffles and your throat begins to feel funny and you just know that in about, you know, a day or two, you're going to just feel horrible. That's what the summer of 1991 was like. So I don't know how much longer they could have kept it going because by by then, really, everybody from 86 was gone, save for a few pitchers and Howard Johnson. Um, But, uh, you know, I... That, that was a team that was about 15 games over 500 uh, in the middle of summer. They were a couple games behind the, the pirates uh, who had been, you know, their, their primary rival at that point for a little while. And it just fell apart. And, you know, it's, it's, well, one of the things I learned or was reminded in, in this little exercise was, you know, context, I guess. When you have a good team, Having a disappointing year. I don't, I don't mean like super disappointing, like 2017, but like say a, a 1989 type of year, or a 19. Uh, well, I was gonna say 1989 again. So <laughs> when, when, when you're t- two thousand one, if you can think back to that, uh, gee, they're right. they're good, but they're just not good enough. And then you compare it to a year like 1982 or 2017, for that matter, or you know any of the early Terry Collins years. It's like that is a huge difference between being like. A pretty good team that isn't good enough and how disappointing that is. And just being a horrible team in your whole summer, you know, is shot from a competitive standpoint. And, you know, when when you lose that, you lose a lot. So I, I kinda miss that.
0: Absolutely. Eighty eight obviously is is one for me, even though I was very young, you know, that's a, a defining uh, season for obvious reasons with social and everything. But let me let me throw you the other part as and I have a, a season and I'll give that to you after I hear your answer. The season where, and I'm going to use the term the innocent climb, the old Pat Riley term, because you kind of, even though you may, they surprise you, even though it's a competitive season, the stress level of competing isn't there because they're surprising you. There's a few seasons I think that fall into that. Um, As you were going through this, what were those seasons where you're like, hmm, you know that that was better than I expected. I didn't never expected them to do that, and you remember, although maybe it didn't turn out numerically the best season. It actually was fun. And, and you remember it fondly for whatever reason, maybe that's a nuanced type of uh, ranking in that
2: sense. Well, I think the, the one year that is um, that, that it, to me is pure and wonderful and innocent. It's not from my childhood, but it's from, uh, you know, well into my adulthood, 1997. I always, I use this phrase. Exactly what I would think. My my, fa- my exactly. favorite team, my favorite season. You know what? I had, you know, and if you you know, given your your age, it was probably the you know af- after you know the late eighties had dissipated. It was the first you know return to prominence that you you would experience. And I had gone through this and had this the met cycle what what it used to seem like you know seven years. It's biblical seven years of famine, seven years of plenty. But you know what I was saying about ninety one before you know just entering this this terrible fallow period that was similar if not exact uh, carbon copy of, you know, what the late seventies and early eighties were like. And you just got to the point by the late nineties where you began to think the Mets are never going to win again. And there were no expectations going into the 1997 season. There had, there had been little fits and starts after 93, which is what the set, uh, uh, second to worst on my list. But, uh, you know that they had really backslided in 1996, despite some memorable individual performances. And then you had, you know, the other what I call the the Chernobyl cloud of New York baseball, the 1996 Yankees that you know left, left its radiation poisoning over the competitive landscape and never really went away. So that that was fresh. The Mets, you know, everything that was supposed to be good about the Mets in '96 had not come off in terms of the the young pitching. And the guys you were relying on for 97 didn't really follow up 96, at least two of those guys uh, in terms of Lance Johnson and Bernard Gilkey. Hunley still had a pretty good year. And it didn't matter because Bobby Valentine comes in and, you know, finds all these spare parts and welds them together. And they're in contention, Uh, you know, just close enough to, to keep you dreaming the whole year. There was like a, you know, like any year where you don't win, there's a there's a moment of disappointment when you realize it's not going to happen that this great story you're you're sort of conditioning yourself for doesn't reach the, the chapter you wanted to. And in in that case, it would have been winning the wild card and taking it from there, ca- catching the hard to say this now, but big bash, Florida Marlins. But that was such you didn't you know, you didn't mind because they won eighty eight games after you know winning seventy one the year before after not having had a winning record since nineteen ninety doing it with guys you never thought about before, guys like John Olerud, who was having, you know, was was basically a reclamation project at that point in his career, guy like Rick Reed, who, you know, everybody knew the story back then, A, you know, sort of an unwilling replacement player in spring training with another organization who had never had any real success and becomes, as the saying went, Greg Maddox's light. and Edgar Alfonso, who, Dallas Green basically confined to a utility role in two seasons who becomes the everyday third baseman, playing, you know, great defense and be showing himself to be this clutch hitter and all kinds of, you know, contributors. And remember you know, at the end of two things about the end of that year, I, I, will, I will tell you, Mike, one, the last game of the year, I, which I went to by myself, which I didn't do very often, but I just it was one of those situations where I just had to be there with, One out in the top of the ninth because the Mets were winning. They were playing the Braves, who had one foot on the bus and just wanted to get to the playoffs. I just remember standing, and I just started cheering up at just like what a year it had been. And I thought, like, God, I don't want anybody to see me doing this. And I looked around, and there were at least four other people doing the same thing. And it was just perfect, wonderful feeling. And I I have a friend who I've met since then who said he was at the game and had the same experience. And the other thing I remember was, You know, you you get past the World Series, you figure, okay, everybody's had some level of disappointment in baseball because they didn't didn't make the playoffs, they didn't win the World Series. And then you had the Marlin fans who had no time to enjoy it because their owner was tearing things apart. And I'm like, you know what? I may be a member of the only fan base that isn't disappointed at this moment here, you know, late October, early November, whatever time of year it was, in 1997 because all I felt was – you know, jubilation at the fact that my team was pretty good. And, you know, I was ready, obviously, to, you know, step up in class. And from then on, I, for the rest of my life as a Mets fan, to this point, either, you know, it was going to be I, – I figured it was going to be a lousy year or I was going to have expectations. And if the lousy year was transcended somehow, um, I wasn't as surprised. 97 totally surprised me in a way I didn't know I was capable of. I, I would go so far as to say that, you know, I don't think I'd be – writing a blog and writing books and talking to guys with podcasts about the Mets right now, if it hadn't been for 97, it was just like, it just sucked me in a way that I, that I stayed engaged really for the next five years at at, at a level. I don't think I'd ever been at before. And and that includes 69 and 73 and 86. And, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, for, for, for all my output since then I've ever been quite as engaged as that Bobby V period. So, um, well, no, a long answer for for your question. Uh, ninety seven, no, is and, kind of the, the beautiful year. And, and all, I agree. All, all, and it only ranks number thirteen, by the way. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. I try to look at it That's right.
0: I agree, and then maybe you have those last you know twelve weeks of twenty fifteen that fall into that a, a little bit. But ninety seven to two thousand one almost is like one long season. If you think about yeah. it, like everything was like continuous <laughs> and and there's actually, you know, for an author, Greg, maybe there's a book in that, you know, but it's like 97 and then it was 98 and then he had 99, which they had the summer where you were as close to 86 as possible with about, you know, 55 and 15, whatever they were at one point. And then 2000, get to the World Series, then you try to get back and things don't work out. But like that to me is one long, it's four years or five years, but that's one long season. And that's the way I've always felt about that. I don't know if you ever see that. Uh, again I see in it
2: history. Yeah, I I agree completely with that. It was I mean there there are, you know, n- nuances to each of those seasons. What 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 got me about it, and a lot a lot of that actually is, you know, is is kind of the subtext of the Piazza book about that era. But uh, you think about 98 to 01, the Mets came close to winning something different every year and didn't. Uh 98 they almost won the wild card, you know. I mean, it, it's it's it sort of washed away by by other collapses that have, you know, made 98 seem like child's play. Um, But, you know, the the five games that they lose at the end of the year, 99, they almost win the pennant and, you know, arguably as sensational an NLCS as has ever been played. And that includes 86. And it's just a year that, you know, you you couldn't take your eyes off them, you know, but especially toward the end. And in uh, 2000, they almost win the World Series, uh, a series, I think, was a lot closer than is generally remembered because it was a five-game series, and unfortunately they, they were probably outpointed uh, by a more experienced opponent. And 2001, where they finished six games out, but for, for a couple of swings, a couple of pitches uh, against the Braves and uh, against the Phillies uh, late that year, uh, that team wins a division. To think about the Mets, and say, A, coming from where they were, because that year that, that appeared to be over in August. Uh, they were, that was a 1974-2017 type of season in the making for three quarters of a year. There were 14 games under at one point. And they came roaring back, and they get to September, and they have a, a puncher's chance, as they say. And then 9-11 happens, and you don't care about baseball for a week. Maybe you don't care about baseball at all for, for the rest of the year or for a couple of years, depending on, on what your life is like. But, you know, if, if you could bring yourself to look at the Mets, they just kind of kept coming when they return to playing baseball, I mean, obviously Piazza's most famous moments in a a baseball uniform, let alone a Mets uniform, comes that September 21st, hitting hitting the home run, everybody remembers, and they are in position to catch the Braves and write their own incredible New York story, and unfortunately, you know, (laughs) that that miracle ran out of steam, even though, you know, they they were still in it a week later, if they had, uh, you know, you know Armando Benitez, John Franco, anybody you you care to name just couldn't get that last uh, that last pitch over. But um you know they they just kept you on the edge of your seat for for five seasons starting with 97 and you know you were just waiting for that one last note to be hit where you know they make it all the way and you know unfortunately that didn't happen but yeah that that was that was an incredible you know era as it were, and, you know, to realize, you know, sort of what I was saying about 91 before, that that was ending in 2002, although it, it felt a lot uglier in 2002, unfortunately, and, and felt a lot more pointless, uh, you know, in the years that followed uh, the, the brief, but felt like it took too long, Art Howe era. But uh, yeah, Absolutely. That, that, that was a hell of a Absolutely. time to be a Mets fan.
0: Couple, couple things before we wrap up. So first thing, uh, interesting. Uh, when you go to the bottom four or five, you know everyone say, "Oh, it's got to be the '62 Mets." No, it's not the '62 Mets. You have years like 1979, 77, uh, 93, all uh, ranked below 1962. Uh, again, I got to think that's the nuances uh, of that. And uh, obviously, having not lived through the '70s, I did live through 1993. Uh, I could understand it. Believe it or not, from a metric standpoint, the worst team in Mets history is not 1962. It's 1963 by, you know, less than a percentage point. So I don't know if it really matters. You know, one team lost 120 games. One team lost 111. It's all bad when you look at it. Uh, But interestingly enough, your 70s are a lot worse for you, late 70s, than the early 60s. And maybe it's an obvious reason, but we figured, you know, before we get to this 86-98 thing that Coney brought up, Figured um, I'd get that in there because that's the other end of the spectrum that we, you know, when we talk about eighty six, now that's the, of the other end of the spectrum, sure. what have you?
2: Sure. Well, it's, it's funny because one of the uh, two, two pieces of feedback I got on this, uh, in terms of you know what I would have done different, uh, according to whoever was responding, well, one was overwhelming. And I actually warmed my heart overwhelmingly pro sixty nine over eighty six, which I think is you know. Charming. (laughs) I don't have to be sold on 69. I could just as easily have flip them around, I suppose, except for the reasons I gave earlier. Um, The other thing was, oh, you can't put I had 1962 in 52nd place, which is to say it had uh, one, two, three, four seasons behind it. And I was told, you can't have 62 that low. Not, Not that I don't have it in last place, but oh, you know, it's 1962. Um, Listen, I I have a great appreciation for what 1962 meant. Although I did, it's the one season I can lit, say I literally did not live through. Uh, I did not become a fan until 69, but I'm, you know, was was born in the you know af- after that season was over and was unfortunately too young to experience the the rest of the Casey Stengel and West Western eras. But um, you know, I, pre- I I I wanted to try as hard as I could to keep 1962 out of the last place because it is so important in the net. Telling, and you know when you think about sixty two you think about you know, Martha and Barry and Casey stengel and all all the all the stories, especially somebody my age heard growing up uh, listening to Ralph and Bob and Lindsay uh, you know that there there's something about it that is more than just the most losses in modern baseball history, that said. It's still the most losses in modern baseball history, and I just, at the end of the day, I just couldn't ignore 120 losses, so the the way my bottom list uh, compiles just, you know, I went with 79 as the worst year, um, by a hair behind 93, and as I I think I wrote, uh, 93 doesn't deserve to be ahead of anybody, (laughs) in in all honesty, but... Seventy nine was the year that it felt like the Mets ceased to exist as a franchise. Uh as as much as you could complain about the current ownership and the way things have been done in in recent years, say for a couple of good ones. Um seventy nine with you know basically had a you know an out to lunch sign on Shea Stadium with, you know, literally almost nobody showing up for games and nobody talking about the Mets and really very little talent to speak of, although you know, I was, what, 16 years old that year, and I, you know, I went to games and I cheered for these guys. But, you know, you knew that they, there was never any hope. And really, the only thing, that, to my mind, that separated 93 from 79 in, in giving it a slightly better deal, uh, slightly better ranking, was you, know, you had a little bit of hope going into 93. Of course, it was dashed, uh, whereas you had none in 1979. And 93 was... A total train wreck, which at least makes it a topic of conversation for a few months before the myths were so far gone that nobody cared about them anymore. Um, you got, so a, book, you got my... a
0: book out of it. You got a book out of it, which is an interesting
2: book nonetheless. So they had yeah. something, there, right? There was, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you couldn't you couldn't take your eyes off it, and it was only you know, again, you're you're only at that point, you know, a year and a half removed from what I was talking about before. A perfectly healthy nineteen. 19- was on the brink and this was kind of the the result 79 in the same vein was you know the result of you know what we saw in 77 which I have in 54th place Um, so we're talking 56 79 55 93 54 77 77 is so colored by trading Tom Seaver, there's real and you know losing 98 games and just the end of everything that that especially if you were my age that you had grown up with this like great pitching uh, you know Situational hitting opportunistic hitting, whatever you want to call it good fielding decent chance decent team you know there was nothing left by then, and just just to round out the 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 bottom portion here i I decided nineteen sixty five based on everything I've read and talked to people that that would have to you know be sort of the standard bearer as the worst of those early teams just because the team had been in business for four years by then and they backslid to one hundred and twelve losses um again we we we're, were talking about you know, nuance here. But when they went from one hundred twenty to hundred eleven losses, and then the next year to one hundred and nine losses, that was considered in in real time, actual improvement. People were actually delighted by that, that, you know, we've gotten somewhere and we're gonna keep making strides and then, you know, you get to nineteen sixty five with a very young team and you win only 50 games, which was off of the the mammoth pace of 53 the year before. So, so some, something had to take the uh, the blame for those early years, or, or carry the brunt of it. I decided 1965, and um, you know, when, once you get out of the the what I call the walk bottom three, and then the, the the early four, uh, you know, the amazing part when I was doing this was realizing. When you start getting into years like 2003, 2009, 67, 82, 82, 78, and so on, how many bad years there are, and yet you have to rank them ahead of something, which just goes to show you how many really, really bad years there have been in Mets history. But the fun part in doing this was was working my way up, because I wrote wrote it from bottom to top, if you will. And, you know, God, like, who's going to want to read this? This is so depressing. And as it gets going, it's like, okay, now there's some good news. Oh, wow. Hey, now we're you know we're a really good team. Wow, we're in the playoffs. Wow, we won the World Series. So, uh, you know that that's the beauty of a countdown. Except, except when we do year-end countdowns of the top songs of the year, like all those songs were were big hits in the last 12 months. Uh, you know, a lot of these seasons uh, were were mostly forgotten, but uh, you know that they all depending on. Uh, how old we are and, and how much we, we care to retain, uh, kind of linger in the recesses of our subconscious, I suppose. So I guess that, that was the idea behind this, and it was a lot of fun to do.
0: Last thing. So there was some talk, David Cohn, saying that the you know, 98 Yankees were better than the 86 Mets. I think Strawberry, and I think he even did it on a show I did many years ago, said it was the 86 Mets. I actually ran this with, with Stratomatic many years ago, probably 10 years ago. And unfortunately, the 98 Yankees did beat the 86 Mets in six games, and I'll throw you a couple things and just get your reaction. One uh, was that after getting bombed in game one, Bobby O'Heebe came back and pitched them back in game two. That shouldn't surprise you. Uh, Shane Spencer actually killed the Mets in that series, and David Cohn uh, won uh, a pivotal game uh, five uh, against what I guess was his future team, if you look at 86, or former team, depending what. You look at. So, right. uh, don't know what that means, but the uh, the simulation, which is pretty darn realistic in a lot of ways, says Coney's right. So, just wanted to throw that last one out to you as we wrap up here.
2: Uh, you know, the, the one thing about da- David Cohn, I remember, you know, I don't remember what year it was. It was one of the years, somewhere 88, 89, let's say, uh, for the Mets were kind of being disappointing. And one of the, the strands of coverage was, oh, you know, the Mets are not living up to 1986. And David Cohn said, well, you know, in 1986, we were a such and such team. And I remember saying, you weren't here in 1986, so how the hell would you know? Uh, you know, you were a minor leaguer in Omaha or wherever and called up to Kansas City. So, um, uh, but it never stopped him from, from being an authority, I suppose. Um, but my, my feeling on stuff like this is when I when I remember the 86 Mets, it was the feeling that ultimately nobody is going to beat this team. And I felt that throughout that year. I felt it during Houston. I felt it during Boston, even when Boston was up. Maybe not with two outs and nobody on the 10th inning of Game 6 of the World Series, but it was just a sense that this team is just not going to be beaten. Now, to be fair, I feel that way about every really great world champion. And so when when I kind of go through these things in my mind, like, well, you know, where the 86 Mets good as the 75 Reds, and I could say, well, you know, this team had that, and that team had this. No, I just, when I watched the 75 Reds, like, they didn't lose to anybody when it mattered. Uh, when I watched, you know, the, the 72 A's, they didn't lose to anybody when it mattered. And, you know, when I watched the 98 Yankees, sadly, they didn't lose to anybody when it really mattered. Um Although, you know, it feels like in retrospect they didn't really play anybody who who was all that difficult, but, you know, they made everybody look, you know, like a lesser team that year. Um, so, you know, in my heart, I will not take anybody against the 86 Mets, but I can never say for sure, and I, I can not say for sure that in some kind of dream super tournament that the 2017 Astros wouldn't, wouldn't beat everybody inside either uh i think it's just a matter of perspective and uh ha- how how you choose to frame it but uh you know to, uh, i you know uh, you, you give me the 86 nets uh, tomorrow against any team you care to name i will take my chances
0: <laughs> I figured you would say that, uh, for sure. <laughs> hey, so what do you got coming up? You got anything you want the listeners to know about? Any projects you're working on? Obviously, Faith and Fear and Flushing, and uh, you could go there uh, daily, and then there's your Twitter account, at Greg underscore Prince. It's, it's been a fun uh, bit of time, and, and figured give you give you a chance to let everyone know what's going to happen next, other than the fact that you will be at City Field in 2018.
2: Yeah, I'll probably be out there uh, when, uh, god it's, it's less than two months away now. Uh, you know, no, 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 nothing amazing to report at the moment. Certainly, uh, please, please keep reading the blog. Uh, my friend Jason Fry and I are uh, r- ramping up in advance of spring training. And uh, when, it, when I hopefully uh, have, have some news to report, uh, it, it, I will uh, br- bring it out there. Hopefully, uh, you know, a, a team – that uh, is a little more enhanced than it is right now uh, to cover uh, for the rest of the year, uh, you know, th- throughout this off season in which there's just been a lot of, I guess, uh, disgruntlement, disappointment, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, it's kind of it seems similar to a lot of teams in baseball right now, and I've been basically telling myself, you know, it's not March 29th yet, um, even now. It's not March 29th yet, so we get to March 29th and we're looking at a roster that still has, shall we say, soft spots. Um, that'll be a little concerning, and I suppose it could be better now, but, you know, the record is zero and zero right now. So, yeah, no. the only prediction I have is 2018 is coming.
0: And maybe you'll have to do 57 years next year. We'll have to see. Maybe oh, 2018 well, will
2: you know, that'll... I would hope... Everything I said about sixty nine eighty six, 86 I, I would love to, to one year bump them down a notch, be totally uh, – I want to write the uh, the paragraph well. I never thought I'd see anything like these again, but, wow, this is even better. I'm not holding my breath. Greg, like you never know.
0: enjoy the Super Bowl if you're watching it. Great talking baseball on Super Bowl Sunday. Be well. Let's do this again. All right, man?
2: Thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it.
0: That's Greg Prince. Faith and fear and flushing.
2: Good, uh, great segment. Let it
0: go long and uh, and you know great stuff and hopefully gave you something to think about. Mental bubble gum, something to get you through the day and through the off season and um, you know just something interesting. I thought it was a fun segment rather than just break down Alex Cobb, Lance Lynn, Todd Frazier or complain about the lack of free agency movings, the ownership group. You know sometimes you want to get away from that. So anyway, uh, we're basically out of time. I'm not going to belabor anything any longer. Um, obviously we'll keep an eye on what's going on in the free agency process. Um, planning on being back next week, uh, planning on doing some kind of call-in show, uh, soon, uh, with pitchers and catchers coming. And hopefully I got some things planned, you know, spring training's a fun when we do our grapefruit roundups, roundups and, uh, hoping to have some fun stuff, and hopefully something to talk about. Hey, you want to thank Greg Prince. Of course, you can check him out on Twitter, at Greg underscore Prince, and you can check him out at Faith and Fear and Flushing. Of course, I want to thank the good folks over at MetsmorizeOnline.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you soon. Take care.